the next issue of Matters of Perspective, geopolitical podcast of Danube Institute. My name is Anton Lenderzewski. I am director of research of Danube Institute. And this is a very special issue. Today, we'll talk about uh, research going on in, at Danube Institute. And for that, I would like to welcome our guests, Jeffrey Kaplan, who is distinguished fellow at the Danube Institute. He has published over 20 books on religious violence, terrorism, and religious movements. We have here Tomasz Orban, who is a research fellow at the Danube Institute, and Zofia Todbiro, who is an analyst at the Danube Institute. So, you're working on a big research project about anti-Semitism in Hungary. Your main key finding is that anti-Semitism is in decline in Hungary today. However, on the other hand, the portrayal of the country is quite negative in this regard. The perception is quite the opposite what we can see in reality. Could you please talk more about your research and your key findings on the topic? Yeah, the origin of the study really was my coming to Hungary last August and absolutely convinced um, by reading the Washington Post and the New York Times that Hungary had closed the parliament because the Orban government wanted to cancel democracy and take power, take full power, and that part of that, part of the drive for that was a very strong anti-Semitism. And when I got here, after it took a very short time to see neither one of those was true. And so you had this dichotomy of how Hungary is seen from the outside. So it interested me to find out how Hungary is seen by the, from the inside. And so to answer your question specifically, we took a multi-tiered approach. Um, we've been doing interviews with members of the Jewish community on all sides of the divide. We've talked to international scholars and done oral histories. And we've also looked at the um, literature of the subject. We've talked to people and looked at literature from Israel, from the US, and internally from Hungary, in English in my case, and in Hungarian in theirs. And that was basic, that was the basis of where we got our findings. What were the main challenges during your research? Were there any? People were amazingly open. Um, the biggest challenge was simply the COVID epidemic. Um, it was very hard to do interviews for quite a while. We did a few by Zoom in various countries. But that's not the same as sitting down with somebody and actually having a real conver a physical conversation. So part of the problem was to overcome the lockdown. Once that finished, everything really opened up for us. And we were able to get into offices. We were able to talk to people we were able to interact with organizations. And at that point, the research really took off. How active is the Jewish community in Hungary nowadays? Maybe Tomasz can also answer the question. Well, um, we were told that from about 100,000 or 120,000 Jews that live in Hungary, roughly 12,000 are part of any kind of congregation, any kind of church. And out of those 12,000, only 2,000 people who are actually going to synagogue. So it really is a, um, a very small circle of people, a very small um, group of people. But in the meantime, it's very surprisingly fractured. 
um, Jeffrey in the article which uh, was published in July's issue of Hungarian Conservative, uh, you describe the situation with Hungarian Jews as, uh, I think you, the great divide. Why the Hungarian Jewish community is so divided? Well, it's, uh, there are a couple of levels of it, but mainly history. Um, in many ways, it's always been that way. Um, it's always had this divide between the Orthodox and the Nilok. Today, it's divided on a number of levels. Um, part of it is the Orthodox Neolog divide. But more than that, it comes down to personalities in a lot of cases, and it comes down to a contest for resources. And of them all, I think the contest for resources, the struggle for um, government funds and for project funds internationally is probably at the base of what's of the problem at, the, at this point. So we have here the Majihis, which claims to have around 90% of uh, Hungarian Jewish population below its umbrella. And we have Unified Hungarian Jewish Congregation, which is led by Shlomo Kovesh, right? Um, so basically, you're saying that the main divide between them, and not only the organizations, but because of the organizations, divide between the Jewish communities uh, themselves is based on uh, resources, because Majihis is getting more resources because of their claim of uh, the big representation of the Jewish community. They are getting more resources, right? And uh, the other organization would like to, to change that, right? The, well, change the status quo. Um, there's, uh, there's less than meets the eye there, because on the one hand, Mazahis, which, as with most Hungarian I pronounce poorly, is getting a lion's share of the resources on one level. On the other, there are special um, projects which the Hungarian government is funding, and that goes almost entirely to EMI, which is the um, Orthodox group led by Shlomo Kovesh. So this is a basis of a very strong grievance um, on the Mozahis, with the Mozahis leadership. Not all of the Mozahis members, by the way, but the leadership um, very much object to that. Uh, did you find the traces of this divide um, during your interviews? With, because apparently when speaking to the leaders of these organizations, they will highlight the issues and, and the conflict. But what about the general members of the Jewish community who are living here in Hungary? How do they feel about this kind of divide? Okay, so... Um the, you mean the leaders of the community or people no, who yeah, live in the Hungary? The situation with the leaders is, I, I think it's pretty clear because they, they claim that one of the organizations is happy about the things going on and the other organization is uh, would like to have more funding, right? But yes. what about the people, uh, not the leaders themselves? but the Yes, actually leaders are focused on politics, I think, mostly on politics. And the members of the community are focused on the religious life of the community. And um, at that point, they I'm not sure if they you know um, care that about that so much so if we talk about the project house of fates i'm sure that um, many people from majihis um, supports that idea but you know uh, where majihis stands they say that they were very uh, critical about some aspects of this project but when it's about you know religious people i'm not sure if they care about politics that much one thing you have to be careful of with a question like that is the, as Tomasz pointed out, the number of active Jews is actually tiny. Um, if you go to the Dohani synagogue, for example, you'll see 30 people at most on a Sabbath service, and a lot of them are foreign tourists. 
the groups are very, very small. Uh, maybe one to 2,000 who actually attend synagogue. The 12,000 that Tomash mentioned um, are measured by the pay the voluntary tax to a Jewish organization. But does that mean that they do it because they're religious or simply that it's 1% less that the Hungarian government gets and they have some control over it? So we really don't know. Um, they tend to not be very active at all, um, very much in contrast to Christian communities. So they're very hard to measure. Jofi mentioned the uh, situation of House of Faiths. Yeah, I think it's important to comment on that. And just to put it in uh, historical background, this is uh, an important project in uh, one of the districts of Budapest, which was which is built on the place where Jews were collected. It was basically a, a Jewish ghetto um, in 1944. And the project was about to be launched in 2014, but then it has never happened. So the, the opening date is postponed from year to year. Right now, as we can read from the press, maybe it can open its doors in 2022, so next year. So what is the situation? Why, why, why is it happening? It, it's uh, an interesting project, uh, basically a museum of the Jewish ghetto from that period, why the actors in this situation are playing against it? It's not just a museum of the Jewish ghetto, it's a Holocaust museum. But the very problem is the, the ones that oppose the project say that Hungary and Budapest especially has a Holocaust museum already. So why do we need another? And uh, what they usually say is that... And why do we need another? What's the answer for that? As we understood during the courses of our interviews, the current narrative of the Holocaust, the mainstream narrative, deals with Jews primarily as victims and as nothing else. What the Orthodox community, what the unified Hungarian Jewish congregation is trying to do is that change this uh, perspective of Jews and not by taking away the um, victim status, of Jews, because of course they were the victims of the Holocaust, but by introducing fresh new perspectives, which, um, you know, somehow d diversifies how the majority population sees the Jews. They don't want us to see them as weak. That's what Slomo Keves told us. They don't want us to see them as victims only. They, they want us to see them as people with a rich, vibrant culture with a rich heritage, with, um, you know, the Holocaust wasn't, um, it isn't just about numbers. It's about individual peoples, individual fates, which are different and variable in themselves. And what they said is that a Holocaust museum should not be about Hitler dead and sick Heil and um, all the evils of the world. It should be about the people who were there, who suffered, and how, what were their lives, their thoughts, and their relationships. Yes, and there's an, another aspect that we have to mention on this topic is uh, Shlomo Kovesh told us that when uh, he took their, his children to the, the Holocaust Museum, they really didn't understand. They understood what it was about, but uh, they just um, couldn't understand the deeper levels of that. 
So if they, they just thought of it as another boring museum, which was right now about a uh, Holocaust. And that's why they, so the basics of the, the new museum is that children during the Holocaust tell us their story, how they survived uh, the concentration camps and how they overcame this tragedy and um, the suffering. So um, if you can, you know, see or experience their suffering and their story, when the story is told uh, by children, it's more emotional than it just, you know, um, I don't know, texts about how Hitler died. And the final level of it is the historiographic one, which is who was completely responsible for the Holocaust? Was it the bad Germans entirely or was it a mix with a lot of Hungarian participation? And this is the big argument between historians and between the two Holocaust museums, um, the historiography of it, the narrative. And that's very much at issue. But we can't really comment on it because the House of Fates hasn't opened. So we're hearing about it, but we haven't actually seen it. But every museum of every type has a narrative. It has its own um, thrust, the ideas it's trying to get across. And that's true of any kind of museum, um, Holocaust or national of any kind. And so we really can't judge it, but that's been a part of the argument going on within and around the Jewish community, internationally as well as, as, well as in Hungary. Despite the uh, divide between the community, Danube Institute organized a conference in June regarding anti-Semitism in Hungary. And uh, basically all the leaders or the representatives of this Hungarian community were there on the conference. How did you manage to do that? <laughs> Before we started, um, one of the one of actually our speakers from New York, who was a rabbi with the American Jewish um, Committee, said that number one, you're bound to fail because there's no way you'll get everybody in the same room and talking to each other, or at least talking at each other. That's first. It's just impossible. But if you can do it, it'll be a great mitzvah for the Jewish community, which is a great a good deed in Hebrew. <laughs> so basically, I think we were just very fortunate. Um, part of it was timing, um, the you know people emerging from the COVID cocoon. And part of it was they simply got interested in what we were doing and what we had to say. So a couple of the a couple of the major leaders only agreed just days, literally days before the, the conference. Um, but they were all there. That the Israeli ambassador was there, I think, was also a big factor. And and so that was good. Um, and Jeffrey, if I may ask you a personal question, do you have any affiliation to the Jewish community or how, how the topic came to your interest? No, I really don't. Um, I've, you know, it's, it's always been something interesting to me because when I teach, I've taught Judaism, I've taught Islam, I've taught comparative religions. And so I've always found it a fascinating topic. Um, I lived for quite a while in Palestine, and so very close to Israel, so a lot of interconnection with the Israelis there. And it's, it's always been an interest. Um, it was interesting to me, be, and it interested others in the Institute. This would be a really great thing to study. Why don't we give it a try? But I have no special affiliation with them, now. Jofi, you made an interview with a female member of a Jewish community. Could you give us some insight? Of course. So I'm sure that you've already watched or at least heard of the series called Unorthodox. Uh, it shows uh, how women live in their community, uh, what rules they have to follow and so on. 
so if you watch the series, you may think that all uh, religious Jewish women in Hungary um, have to follow the same rules, like they have to shave their hair very big when they when they are on their period. They can't sleep in the same bed with their husband. As a matter of fact, their husband can't even touch them during that time, but it's not true. So we interviewed Nora Siladi, the head of Tzedek, which is a Jewish charity organization, and she told us about her life as a religious Jewish woman. According to her, in Amich, everything goes step by step. So you can be a religious woman without, you know, being under the obligation to wear a wig or um, to cover your body. When she entered the community, uh, she knew less about um, the rituals uh, and she wanted to learn. So they welcomed her and taught her uh, without, you know, wanting her to, you know, to change as a woman. Of course, there are women in the community um, who follow these religious rules very, very strictly, but it's only because they choose to. So there are some parts of religious Jewish life where she feels a bit oppressed as a woman. Uh, it might be because for most of the rituals, uh, they have to have a man <laughs> because without that man, they can do anything. But conversely, it's not true as if there are no women, men still can light the candles, for example. But still, uh, women have an important role, as without women, there are no children. Uh, and only the person whose mother is a Jew is Jewish. So it is a very um, double-ended story, I guess. But what I'd like to highlight is that in Habad, women can choose. For Nora, it's not the wig or it's not the clothing that determine how religious she is as a Jew. For her, it's how she raises her child. And he, she's raising her son in a very religious way. And that is enough for her and also for her community. Thank you. On the inside, it's quite interesting. Let's get back to the key findings of your research regarding antisemitism in, in Hungary. So you, you are saying that uh, antisemitism in Hungary is in decline. Is it based on perception or have you measured any other measurements, issues of antisemitism? Or is it purely based on perception of Hungarian population or the Jewish community itself? Now, there are two levels here on um, whether it's anti-Semitic actions or feelings of innate anti-Semitism. In terms of actions, there's been only one violent incident um, that can be traced to anti-Semitism here since 2019. So it's been two years now. Um, you would get that an hour in a place like Paris or New York. Um, so, on the one hand, the manifestations of violent anti-Semitism are entirely absent in Hungary. And part of that is the government cracked down hard on it. Um, Jabik has claimed to change its um, views on the subject. So, there are a lot of changes there. On the other hand, anti-Semitic feeling is something that is hard to measure. Um, Professor Andras Kovac has done some excellent work with this, and he is the one that carries on the um, interviews, the um, statistical um, part of anti-Semitism in Hungary. And he shows a very interesting decline in two areas which is people who are religiously anti-Semitic. In other words, the Jews killed Jesus, or the Jews are plotting to take over the world, that kind of thing. That has declined a lot. 
Other forms of anti-Semitism have declined, um, but political anti-Semitism has actually risen and risen sharply. And a lot of that is due to left-wing anti-Semitism, um, anti-Israeli, anti-Zionism, um, anger at treatment of the Palestinian population, that sort of thing. So statistically, it's complex. Um, it's rising in a political area largely because of left-wing anti-Semitism. Um, and it's declining in other areas. In terms of violent anti-Semitism, it's almost entirely absent. The one most interesting thing I think that we all got out of the interviews was um, given to us by one of the orthodox um, people that we interviewed. And he um, pointed out, you know, look at me. And so we looked at him and he looks Jewish. Um, he has the payasin, which is the hair, um, beard. He dresses in a very Jewish way. And he says, you know, I hardly ever experience any kind of anti-Semitic comments in the streets. But you get reports by more secular Jews that it's something that they have to deal with a lot. And he says, well, what always surprises me about it is how does anybody on the streets know they're Jewish? They look exactly like other Hungarians. Um, I look Jewish. And <laughs> it doesn't happen to me. You know, there is a level of perception that's simply immeasurable. You can't tell somebody who reports something like this, that they've been the victim of anti-Semitic remarks. You can't say, no, statistically I can prove it didn't happen. It's perception, and the perception comes from something. It comes from the, from the family past. It comes from the, uh, the period in around 2011, 2012, when Yabik was on the rise and anti-Semitism was really an important, a big thing where there were anti-Semitic incidents as well as anti-Roma incidents around the country. Sorry, just a quick remark. Jobbik is, uh, used to be a far-right nationalist party in Hungary. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And very anti-Semitic, very anti-Roma. Um, they're under new management. <laughs> they have a new ideology, they say. And so it's, very it's a very interesting subject. But since that has gone down, um, we don't see it so much. But anybody who is a teenager or above experienced it. And so you can, you know, and it was real. So, you know, they, they're not making it up. It's not pure imagination. There's something there. And it takes time for that to calm and to be forgotten. There was another uh, quite interesting um, difference in the perception of anti-Semitism. Uh, regarding to one very, very specific thing, which was the anti-Soros campaign. For those who do not know, the uh, Hungarian government had a, um, an official ad campaign against the NGOs related to the philanthropist George Soros. At that time, the leftist media of Hungary and the international media was uh, full of uh, reports saying that this campaign is profoundly and as anti-Semitic because Mr. Soros is uh, Jewish. So naturally, we asked about this issue in uh, almost every of our interviews and uh, the people had very different views. So the more secular uh, neologue Jews, they, they all thought that yes, the Soros campaign was a very um, obvious sign 
of institutionalized uh, anti-Semitism within the government. Whereas the people on the Orthodox side, they all thought that it had very little or nothing to do with anti-Semitism, simply because Mr. Soros is uh, not religious at all. He was born a Jew, but um, he never really associated with uh, Judaism. So that they all thought that the campaign itself wasn't anti-Semitic. It sort of looked like it was, but the reasons or goals behind it weren't anti-Semitic at all. And um, how does Hungary, just to put it in a broader perspective, how does Hungary perform in terms of anti-Semitism in regards to other parts of Europe? Well, there have been reports out from the EU, which we've quoted, and from the U.S. government as well, that statistically, um, in measurables, Hungary performs um, more than admirably. It's one of the lowest rates of violent anti-Semitism in the EU and possibly, you know, and in North America as well. So on the one hand, it's, um, it's highly admired, but that's not reflected, interestingly, in the Western press. Um, these are NGOs and U.S. government agencies that are that are tasked to track these things, but they're not quoted very much. Um, Why so? That's interesting. It's a good question. It's a good question. Um, I can give you a guess or an, an, a theory, which is that the narrative has much less to do with anti-Semitism than with a more general complaint about illiberal democracy and the Orban government, which is, um, as well as some of the V4 governments and the Trump administration when Trump was in power, that um, there was a threat to democracy and anti-Semitism was simply one trope. Uh, to support the overall narrative. The the overall narrative was though political and had really very little to do with Jews. Okay, finally, let's, uh, my final question, what would be the output of, of, of this uh, big research project ah. of yours? <laughs> well, besides the Hungarian conservative article, which came out this month, um, the big thing is, the next step will be from the conference, we'll be publishing an anthology. The anthology will be divided into two parts, Part one will be transcripts from the presentations, and part two is a group of articles that will be submitted by some of the some of the academics who took part, and that will be the next step. And the third will be a monograph that we're going to write um, with the completion of the of the project, the completion of the interviews. I would like them to be completed by the end of this month, but given the Hungarian vacation schedule, I'm less optimistic every minute. Um, but we're going to try. We hope to have that out by October. Okay, great. Thank you very much. I'm really looking forward to reading about that. Ah, thank you. Thank you very much, all of you, for this nice podcast. And please read uh, the article of Jeffrey Kaplan at Hungarian Conservative, July edition. And thank you. Bye. Bye.